And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to celebrate, maybe a little bit prematurely, uh, some of the advantages that the United States brings into this new meeting with the leader of China between President Biden and Xi Jinping, the president of Communist China. The, uh, we'll be talking about that with Gordon Chang. I was talking about the advantages of the United States. The United States has right now an economy that is chugging along with uh, real energy. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, uh, the market's now closed, but it's uh, up another 163 points today. This is um, Dow adds more than 150 points to clinch fourth winning day, uh, fueling, uh, they say at the uh, CNBC, uh, fueling cooling inflation data, or flinge, uh, fueled by cooling inflation data. Uh, okay. All of this is very strong for us. The Chinese economy, by contrast, is in terrible shape. And uh, Gordon Chang is going to speak to us about that coming up on the Medved Show. He talks about President Xi, who is in desperate need of some kind of wind to bring home, appears ready to engage with Biden. And uh, President Biden had this to say before the high-stakes meeting in San Francisco, which has all been nicely cleaned up of of homeless encampments and uh, people uh, shooting drugs on the street. And uh, at least that's gone for a couple of days while the APEC meeting, uh, Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Council, that APEC meeting is going on. Uh, Here's President Biden before his high-stakes meeting with President Xi. Uh, listen. To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up the phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis, being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. We can't take, as I told you, we're not trying to decouple from China. But we're, what we're trying to do is change the relationship for the better. From my perspective, if in fact the Chinese people who are in trouble right now economically. If the average homeowner or the homeowner, if the average citizen in China was able to have a decent paying job, that benefits them and it benefits all of us. But I'm not going to continue to sustain the support for positions where if we want to invest in China, we have to turn over all our trade secrets. Okay, uh, that's uh, fair enough. We will be speaking to Gordon Chang. There is also other good news before this negotiation even began. And the good news has to do with the fact that Mike Johnson has already achieved a real victory for the Republican Party and for the United States of America by passing uh, a bill that just (laughs) it doesn't really accomplish a meaningful change. What it does is it takes away the uh, the danger of a government shutdown at exactly the wrong time. One of the things that the government shutdown means is that people involved in our national security processes who have a, a real job to do right now, that those people involved in protecting the country would have their regular incomes interrupted. 
I mean, among many other problems. The, uh, the, the question about what uh, happened in uh, the House of Representatives with uh, Speaker Johnson, they, they raise a question in uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, taking a look at uh, some of the uh, differences between what happened with uh, Speaker Johnson and what happened with Speaker McCarthy because uh, Speaker McCarthy lost his position over doing exactly what Speaker Johnson did. And what Speaker Johnson did basically to, uh, to help the country. And uh, they have an a, a editorial in the Wall Street Journal by the editorial board under the uh, heading, Meet the New Speaker. Same as? Same as what? Pop quiz, what's the difference between the bipartisan stopgap funding bill that passed the House yesterday under new Speaker Mike Johnson and the September equivalent passed under former leader Kevin McCarthy? Answer, nothing but the self-defeating Republican drama. Mr. Johnson took a big step toward avoiding a government shutdown when the House passed a continuing resolution that extends current spending levels into early next year. The House Freedom Caucus opposed the bill for lack of spending reductions and money for the border, but the bill passed 336 to 95. Okay, you can do the math. That's more than 3 to 1. That, that means that 75% of the members of the House voted for the bill. Almost all the Democrats and uh, the majority of Republicans, there were 93 Republicans who voted no on the bill. Uh, none of this is meant to criticize Mr. Johnson. Uh, they write in the journal, who, like Mr. McCarthy, has to deal with the tyranny of legislative numbers. The government is due to shut down Saturday, and neither chamber has passed all of its appropriations bills. Mr. Johnson could have tried a Republican-only bill that required deeper cuts as the price of keeping the government open. But he had no guarantee his right flank would support even that. GOP holdouts tanked two of Mr. McCarthy's GOP-only resolutions that contained conservative priorities. Mr. Johnson's bill varies little in substance from the one that cost Mr. McCarthy his job. It contains a two-step approach extending some funding to January 19th and some to February 2nd, eliminates the Senate's ability to jam through another year-round omnibus and gives House GOP negotiators more time to leverage gains in bicameral appropriations conferences. The decision to maintain current funding, they, uh, they write, made the bill acceptable to Democrats and likely guarantees Senate passage. Such political compromises are the price of governance with a narrow House majority and a Democratic control of the Senate and the White House. The uh, lack of a rebellion this week from the Republican rump, by that he means people from the Freedom Caucus, there are about 20 members of Congress who take that position, in a few weeks was too much even for them but it further exposes the hollow claims the McCarthyate made for their October exhibitionism. And what they're talking about is that whole three weeks uh, of chaos uh, where we couldn't get a uh, another speaker 
would be agreeable to a clear majority of Republicans. People voted unanimously for Mike Johnson. And it feels like he may be living up to expectations, which is a great thing to be able to say. Uh, headline, House lawmakers approved a plan Tuesday that would continue funding federal agencies until early next year. A critical step in averting a partial government shutdown with Speaker Mike Johnson relying heavily on Democratic votes to get his bill across the line. The 336 to 95 vote exceeded a two-thirds threshold required under a special procedure employed by Johnson to sidestep internal GOP disagreements. The measure still requires approvals from the Democratic-controlled Senate, where the leaders of both parties have signaled support through, uh, though the timing was uncertain. Uh, the timing of the meeting between the President of the United States and the President of China, however, is, uh, uh, is certain. And it's coming at the same time that Gordon Chang is releasing a, a brand new book called China is Going to War. Can that war be uh, averted? Or can it even be won? And uh, can that, that idea of winning a potential war with China, can that be advanced in any way by the meeting today? We'll get to that and more. And there are times when a new book will come out that has a title that just grabs you immediately and you say I've, I've got to read that I've got to know what's inside this book the title of the new book by Gordon G. Chang who you can reach by directly uh, by the way directly on X it's uh, at Gordon G. Chang don't forget the G uh, his new book is called China is going to war and uh, the uh, the question Gordon is if China is going to war, can uh, anything happen today in the big meeting between President Biden and President Xi? Can anything happen to avert that war? Yes, something could happen, Michael. For instance, if President Biden were to say the United States is going to send a destroyer to Second Thomas Shoal, and we will no longer tolerate Chinese belligerent actions in the South China Sea. And we're going to send not only a destroyer, but the entire U.S. Air Force to monitor it. Yeah, I think the Chinese would step back and say, we're concerned. The other thing that we could do is we could say, we are going to make sure Iran never sells another drop of oil to China in violation of our sanctions. Um, and we're just going to take out those oil fields. If we were to do that, yeah, I think China would take up and sit notice, uh, take, uh, sit, you know, that they would notice that. The point is, Biden's not going to say any of those things that are necessary. And people might say, oh, those things are dangerous. But the point is, after three decades of misguided policy, everything going forward is dangerous. And we have to reestablish deterrence if we want to avoid war. You uh, you write uh, in your new book, uh, the Communist Party of China is fast-tracking the largest military buildup since the Second World War. And then later you say that uh, how many times in history 
has a militant regime embarked on a breakneck military buildup, as Nazi Germany did, as the Japanese militarists did in the 1930s, uh, has the militant regime embarked on a breakneck military buildup and not launched a war of aggression. Uh, when you talk about that war of aggression, today, uh, just a couple hours ago, the U.S. shot down a drone that was launched from Yemen as it was headed toward a Navy destroyer, according to the uh, Pentagon. The destroyer was the USS Thomas Hudner, an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer. Does China have any involvement with this Iranian, uh, apparently Iranian-based uh, attack from Yemen? Well, it certainly does, because that was almost certainly from the Houthis militia. Um, in 2021 and this year, the U.S. Navy intercepted Chinese arms going to the Houthis. Um, we know that China has supported Iran to the hilt. So, for instance, I mentioned oil sales. Um, in the first nine months of this year, China has, sold, has purchased oil from Iran in a volume 60 percent above that in the comparable period in 2017. 2017 is relevant because that was the last year before the U.S. reimposed sanctions on the purchase of Iranian oil. So basically, China is financing Iran's attacks on Israel. What, um, uh, what could Biden say uh, either to promise China to divert uh, some of this uh, uh, warlike, bellicose approaches, or uh, what could he say to uh, uh, inform China of more severe but plausible consequences? Well, he's going to have to do more than he did on October 25th when uh, he was welcoming the Australian Prime Minister at the White House. And President Biden, to his credit, um, said that the United States was prepared to use force against China to discharge our obligations to the Philippines in the South China Sea. Because, as I mentioned, China has been engaged in very dangerous and very belligerent activities there. Some of those activities constitute acts of war against the Philippines, which we have an obligation to defend. But obviously that didn't work because on Friday, China used water cannon on a Philippine vessel at Second Thomas Shoal. And that also was a, an act that arguably constituted an act of war as well. So we're not deterring China. Um, and President Biden's words are not enough, at least the words he's used up to now, which means he's got to use stronger words and he's got to back them up by action. Could some of that action involve a an American military buildup, which we haven't had, to try to keep pace with the, what is it, 350 ships now in the Chinese Navy, which has more ships uh, than any Navy in the world? Yeah, what we can do, because we can't build ships as fast as China because we don't have the industrial base anymore. But what we can do are take those steps that would convince China that we're serious. So, for instance, you know, we're building a lot of ships and planes for the 2030s and the 2040s. Um, I think the risk of war is not then, but now. So what we need to do is to build our munitions base. We need to make sure that Navy ships, when they go out to sea, have full loads of missiles, which they don't now. We need to harden our bases in the region. 
We need to do all sorts of those things that are obviously preparation for war now, because war is coming now, and we've got to show China that there would be a cost which would be too high for them to bear. And so far, we haven't shown that sense of urgency in the Pentagon. So it's not just the Biden administration. It's the senior leadership of the, Chinese, of the U.S. military that does not have that sense of urgency. And uh, would the most likely beginning of uh, the war that we're talking about involve a Chinese strike against Taiwan? Well, it could, but um, right now I think the Chinese military has decided for a couple of reasons not to go after Taiwan, at least in the near term. Um, one of them is that Taiwan is too hard of a target right now, and it would involve prohibitive Chinese losses. But second of all, there's a political reason, and that is Taiwan is going to have its national election on, June, on January 13th of next year. And I don't think it, China would see it in its interest to attack um, before that election. And it probably wouldn't attack after, after the election if the pro-China forces do better than expected, which is a real possibility. And um, pro-China forces in Taiwan, that's not a majority in Taiwan, is it? No. I mean, the, the president, there's a, a presidential election which um, uh, William Lai, the current vice president of the Democratic Progressive Party, um, which is the pro-Taiwan party, he's going to win by a landslide. But where in the, in the national legislature where you have local issues predominate, um, the pro-China uh, parties, which are more of them than the, than the ruling party, um, they very well may um, get a bigger proportion of the legislature. So that is something that, that would cheer China on. Uh, and just something, another... Another election to worry about at about the same time as the Iowa caucuses. China is going to war. The new book by Gordon G. Chang. He's on X at Gordon G. Chang. Appreciate your update. I wish it could be more cheerful. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Coming up. Well, there is a uh, surprise about a potential most powerful man in the world. Uh, which uh, powerful guy are we talking about? Uh, there's a headline over at the Hill uh, about the D.C. establishment. And you'd think anything that shakes up the D.C. establishment, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, but uh, the headline says the D.C. establishment thinks... RFK, Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., could win the presidency, and they are panicking. And uh, Brian Robertson, who's a regular contributor to The Hill, writes uh, earlier this week that one development that sends shockwaves through the entire class of paid political, political consultants inside the Beltway went almost unmentioned publicly 
a topic of constant discussion and not a little bit of anxiety on both sides was the extraordinarily strong showing of third-party candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in two recent national polls. Both of the polls showed Kennedy leading both President Biden and former President Trump among the key electoral demographics of independent voters and voters under 45 years of age. Now, voters under 45 years of age is a big chunk of the electorate. It's more than a third. Just how disturbing is this development for the Uniparty establishment in Washington, asked Brian Robertson. Uh, Disturbing enough that the New York Times ran a brief story essentially dismissing its own poll results under the interpretive headline, What's behind Kennedy's poll numbers? Voters dread a Trump-Biden rematch. But the argument does not bear scrutiny that Kennedy's remarkably strong showing is merely a function of dissatisfaction with the prospect of a Biden-Trump rematch. His fundraising haul for the third quarter was $8.7 million. It demonstrates robust support for his candidacy, not just dissatisfaction with the other choices. Significantly, Kennedy raised millions of dollars from people who didn't donate at all in the last two presidential elections, a sign that he is activating new voters. Remarkably, he maintains a 19% favorability lead with voters over both Trump and Biden. Okay, what does that mean? That means that there are more people who rate Robert uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. positively by 19 points more than either Biden gets as a positive rating or Trump. Okay, this despite, uh, says Robertson, a concerted effort by almost every mainstream media outlet to dismiss him as a conspiracy theorist and crank. I don't dismiss him as that. I take him very seriously as that. But is he, a, uh, in fact, a conspiracy theorist and crank? Well, yeah, in, in many ways he is. But uh, in this tumultuous environment, writes the piece in The Hill, RFK Jr. has effectively positioned himself as the peace candidate even over Trump, since Kennedy's critique of the military-industrial complex driving U.S. forever wars is much more cogent and comprehensive. Alone among the candidates, he has outlined policies to address the cost of living and affordable housing crises that are wrecking opportunity for Gen Z and younger millennials. In fact, this probably helps explain his significant lead among that crucial demographic. And his positions on the environment, legalization of marijuana, and abortion are much more practical and in sync with post-Reagan-era political realities than those of his major party opponents, constrained as they are by antiquated party orthodoxies. Kennedy's flexibility, he writes, and ability to transcend easy liberal conservative political branding is perhaps most apparent in his early critique of the Biden administration's disastrous open borders policy, which has left mayors of solidly blue Democratic sanctuary cities unable to deal with the flood of new migrants. 
RFK's populist orientation allows him to recognize that a policy supported for cynical electoral reasons by one party and cynical economic reasons by the other is actually in the interest of no one, including the migrants themselves. Giving the polling on the migrant crisis at sea stands to reason that Kennedy's practical and detailed plan to seal the border and end the crisis is one major reason for his surprising strength. And uh, the conclusion, make no mistake, the Beltway establishment is spooked. Their strategy seems to be to get Kennedy to spend all of his money on personal security. This explains the Biden administration's remarkable and indefensible decision to deny him Secret Service protection. And he will also spend a, a bundle of money on qualifying for ballot access by burying his independent campaign under a mountain of legal fees uh, through well-funded lawfare strategies to block ballot access in the states. In other words, given the fact that he is running as an independent, he's no longer running for the Democratic nomination, uh, it means he has to go through a lot of legal hassles just to get on the ballot. And uh, as a matter of fact, there are um, – he concludes, as Brian Robertson, his piece on RFK Jr., by saying it remains to be seen whether these anti-democratic measures will be successful in derailing what appears to be a genuine populist insurgency. Okay, the, the difficulty here is not just getting on the ballot. And, uh, for instance, uh, they, they talk about the no labels movement, which has already started. They are uh, hoping to and planning to uh, get on the ballot in at least 11 states. But that doesn't take you anywhere close to winning a, an electoral college majority. In other words, it, it has been... Uh, remarkable. Do you have to go back to 1968 to find a third-party candidate, and that was George Wallace running as an open segregationist, to find a third-party candidate who actually won electoral votes, and he only won 45. You need 270 to win. Uh, the, the question here is, let's even say that Robert Kennedy Jr. surprises people and carries a few states. Uh, I think it's very unlikely but it's possible. There are lots of weird states out there. There's Oregon and California, for instance. And yes, he would almost surely be drawing some conservative support that could actually help him, together with votes he would take away from Joe Biden, in states like California. But even if he carries California with all those electoral votes... He's very far away from getting an electoral vote majority. The most he could do would be to deprive both of the other candidates with an electoral vote majority. And then what happens? Then it goes to the House of Representatives. And I know there's some people who just instinctively would say, well, right now in the House of Representatives, each state gets one vote. And right now the Republicans uh, control more state delegations in the House than Democrats do. In other words, it's not just that they have a Republican majority, it's they have a majority of the states. 
but not quite. And the, the idea of an election going to the House, where each state gets only one vote, this is a scary prospect for the country. We'll be right back. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know And on the Michael Medved show, you may be slapping your forehead and saying, Medved, what are you doing? Come on, what are you doing? I mean, it isn't even Thanksgiving yet, and you're already starting with the Christmas music. Well, no. There's a reason that we're letting Bing Crosby and Irving Berlin a dream of a white Christmas a little bit early. It's because uh, that uh, slogan, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, has been abused by the Ku Klux Klan. And, <laughs> and where? Uh, no, nowhere in Alabama, not Mississippi, in Gold Bar, Washington. And for those of you who have ever traveled on Highway 2 up to the Cascade Mountains, Gold Bar is a very scenic uh, very charming, uh, small town. Uh, and yeah, if you, if you drive too quickly, well, not only might you get a ticket, but you'll, you'll miss the town. It's, it's small. But, uh, Gold Bar has become the center of, uh, a new controversy involving the I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas theme, uh, the Ku Klux Klan and freedom of speech. Uh, this is a report from uh, Cairo TV 7. Listen. The world is a scary place right now. And Gold Bar should be a safe haven for those of us who live here. A small town divided. Didn't everybody fight for our freedoms, for free speech, and to be able to do what we want here? At the center of the division is this grocery store, more specifically this photo taken inside of it. Here you can see a local cashier at work, his shirt bearing the words, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Freedom of speech, that's not okay. So what is okay? Professor Caitlin Carlson tells me the controversial photo is both hate speech and free speech. The KKK is a hate group. Um, and so this messaging uh, is, is very much hate speech, but it is allowed under the First Amendment. But adds employers do have the right to intervene. If the employer wanted to tell the employee not to wear that, again, to wear a particular uniform, not to engage in potentially open carry, right? They would, they would be well within their rights to do that. I would definitely be asking the employer why it is they're allowing this person to um, come to work and potentially offend or upset customers with this, this attire. That's exactly what we did, taking these concerns to the manager here who said repeatedly, no comment. <laughs> I've lived here 39 years and I've been embarrassed by things in this town before. And this is so far beyond that. Uh, again, um, the the picture of uh, the guy, you can see it, we'll post our website. But uh, he's wearing underneath this, this shirt that has a picture of a hooded Klansman. And where it says, uh, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And then identifies it as the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. He's also wearing a, a blood drop cross pin, which is a symbol of the Ku Klux Klan. I didn't know that symbol. That was pinned to his chest. 
So this is obviously a true believer. Part of the problem is he was also openly carrying a firearm. He was um, uh, where, holding a gun in a holster at his side, which was very visible. And uh, the open gun uh, carried in combination with the Ku Klux Klan uh, sloganeering could be seen as a violation of the state's open carry laws regarding intimidation. In Washington, opening, openly carrying a firearm is legal for the general public in many public spaces. However, it is illegal to carry a weapon at a time and place that either manifests an intent to intimidate another or that warrants alarm for the safety of other persons. Now, given the record of the Ku Klux Klan, and it's not just in the 19th century. The Ku Klux Klan was involved in uh, some of those horrible attacks on uh, civil rights workers in the 1960s. The assassination of Medgar Evers, who was a leader of the NAACP, or actually he was a leader, I think, of the Southern Christian Leadership Council, in uh, the 1960s in Mississippi. Uh, the murder of the three civil rights workers, Cheney, uh, Schwerner, and Goodman, who uh, were killed also in Mississippi. This is recent stuff. And uh, the uh, apparently no one will, uh, will answer the question of what the store, the Gold Bar Family Grocery, uh, what that store is going to be do about this? Um, the uh, uh, there's a, a one correspondent uh, on a chain of correspondence on this. This is reported by the Everett Herald. Uh, hopefully, the Goldbar family grocer reviews and updates policies so that folks feel safe shopping there, not just local residents but visitors and anyone passing through. Okay. Let's specify that maybe uh, if uh, the this individual is dreaming of a white Christmas, he'd probably get that um, by every standard in, in Gold Bar, Washington. But there are lots of tourists who take that highway, too, and go past that way. Can you imagine if a, a black family wanted to stop by at that grocery store? And there's this guy with a heavy beard and a cowboy hat and uh, and and wearing the Ku Klux Klan paraphernalia. Um, they uh, called up from the uh, Everett Herald. They called up the uh, store and uh, an employee at the store said the issue has been addressed. We don't condone this behavior. So pretty much, no, he does not work here. I'm not 100% sure I'm not the owner, but I haven't seen him. He's not here. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, I don't think this is such a big institution that you wouldn't know whether he works there or not. And uh, the point is not to viciously want somebody to necessarily lose a job that he needs, but... What method message are you putting forward uh, by that em employee who works there? It, should an, an employer have the right, free speech not 
withstanding to issue a uh, a dress code, and the dress code includes no uh, no Ku Klux Klan paraphernalia. You would uh, you would think that uh, I, I mean, what if he wants to change the cowboy hat for a white hood? Uh, maybe I don't want to give anybody any ideas, but look, this is a uh, serious material. Um, speaking of serious material, uh, subscribe today to our brand new Substack newsletter, uh, Michael Medved's Context. We have some remarkable context from nine years ago, because the whole idea is uh, basically putting things in the perspective of the past and the future. And nine years ago, I wrote a column in uh, August of 2014. That was during the last war between Israel and Hamas. And what's amazing about the column, and it's a very brief little column about some of the lies that Hamas was putting forward about Israel, is every word of that column from nine years ago could apply today. And with the same force. And uh, so far within days, we've had uh, literally uh, uh, multiple, multiple subscriptions uh, become one of those new subscribers now. It's completely free. It costs nothing. And uh, it is, uh, as I say in a note to the column from years ago, uh, that uh, it's shocking, isn't it, to hear Hamas and its apologists comparing Israelis to Nazis and Netanyahu to Hitler. But for uh, Palestinian apologists, these charges are golden oldies. I responded to the same demagogic theme nine years ago, and my response from 2014 in the middle of the last Hamas war applies just as directly to the propaganda the other side is still promoting today. There's also a, an interview with Max Boot on the future and the threats to democracy. Max Boot, a great historian of America's various wars, says that political dysfunction here at home, not China, is the greatest threat to the United States at this moment. Fascinating conversation also posted at our Substack. Go to uh, Michael Medved, Substack .substack .com, in this greatest nation on God's green earth. <laughs> 